Who wants free stuff? I know you do. And we are giving a lucky Interchange listener a free subscription to our premium editorial service, GTM Squared. That is worth $249. All you have to do is go to Apple Podcasts, give us a rating, and write a creative review. Seriously, have fun with it. And in two weeks, Shale and I are going to pick our favorite and then hook that person up with a free one-year subscription to GTM Squared. So go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and you could end up with a nice complimentary informational treat for yourself. Support for The Interchange comes from Wonder Capital. Having already financed more than 100 megawatts of small commercial solar projects, Wonder Capital was recently named the leading commercial solar financier by Wood McKenzie and Greentech Media. To find out how Wonder Capital can help you finance your next community solar or commercial solar project, head on over to wondercapital.com GTM. Wonder Capital, powering the commercial solar industry. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor with GTM. Welcome to the show. All right, look, we're a couple of weeks into the year, and we're just going to skip right over the optimism and take a hard look at some pretty disturbing data. After a period of moderation, heat-trapping gases are going up here in the U.S. and around the world. One scientist called CO2 emissions a speeding freight train after the global numbers were released in December, implying... Well, yeah, you get the picture. So we throw these number increases around, 1.9%, 2.7%, 3.4%, and they can feel pretty abstract, like climate change itself. But we're going to do our best to put some meaning to them. Shail Khan is with me for the conversation as always. He's the Senior VP of Research and Strategy at Energy Impact Partners. Hey, Shail. Hello, Stephen. How's it going? It is going very well. How about you? How's life over there at PostScript Audio? It's great, man. How's life at EIP? I know that you've been uh, engaging in a lot more air travel these days, and I saw in the numbers in the emissions increases that uh, jet fuel is up. I wonder how much you contributed to that. Uh, More than I would care to admit. (laughs) Yesterday, I did my first ever international day trip. I flew to Canada and back uh, just yesterday, which is to say I have a lot of penance to pay on my air travel emissions. Well, hopefully some of the investments you guys are making in clean tech companies pay off pretty big so you can make up for those <laughs> emissions. I probably need to do more than that, but I appreciate the thought. Well, we've got a guest joining us this week. He is one of my favorite reporters covering, uh, as he appropriately calls it, the apocalypse beat. It's New York Times reporter Brad Plumer. He has been writing about the emissions picture among many energy and environmental topics, and he joins us from the New York Times offices in D.C. Brad, welcome. Thanks for having me on. Uh, the apocalypse beat. <laughs> you mentioned that in your Twitter profile. I always get a chuckle about that. Is that now a vertical at the New York Times? Uh, no, I think we uh, tried to do the uh, ever-elusive mix of uh, doom and gloom and uh, optimism, uh, so we try to mix it up. You guys have really stacked up your climate and energy reporting team in the last year or two. I know the Times has gone through a number of iterations with its you know, green coverage and then its climate coverage. Uh, how are things going with that? I think it's going really well. I mean, one of the advantages of having so many people, I think I should probably know this off the top of my head, but I think we have about eight reporters and we have some graphics folks, is that we can just cover a lot of ground. So 
today, you know, we have reporting on the shutdown and what that's doing to different federal agencies, but also uh, send a reporter to Kazakhstan to look at uh, how climate change is shrinking glaciers and what that means for the millions of people who rely on it for water. Uh, so having a big team really just lets you spread out a little bit, which is which is really nice. Yeah, I've been super impressed with the coverage. It is phenomenal. And a lot of the multimedia coverage is particularly compelling. But, uh, you know, it can be depressing, too. If you read the pages of The Times and any other publication covering the environment, we are faced with daily reminders that the world is way off the most moderate goals set out in negotiations among countries and shockingly far away from targets that scientists say we need to hit. I told you we were skipping over the hopeful rhetoric this week. So over recent weeks, we've seen preliminary numbers come out that remind us of the reality once again. In 2018, global emissions rose by 2.7% and U.S. emissions rose by 3.4%, according to an early tally from the Rhodium Group. So what does this mean? We're going to provide some context to the emissions reversal and then see where we need to make up the most ground. We're also going to touch on the Trump bump. So, Shale, can you kind of walk through what the Rhodium Group tallied for the U.S. in 2018? Like, what's going on? Sure. So first, I think it's worth noting what this is. You mentioned these are preliminary estimates. One of the cool things that the Rhodium Group does, and we've had Trevor Hauser from Rhodium on uh, the podcast before, so some folks might be familiar with him. But um, what the Rhodium Group does is, is they try to get preliminary estimates of annual emissions um, out a lot earlier than you would get the official numbers, because obviously we're in January here. So we don't know for sure exactly what happened in, in 2018, but they could take data from what happened in the first three quarters of the year, extrapolate a little bit, and come to some pretty close estimates. So that's basically what they were doing for, for the overall emissions picture in the U.S. And the high level was that for the first time in the past I think five or six years, overall CO2 emissions increased in the US. They estimated by about 3.4%. And that's actually, it's a pretty big jump. Not only um, had emissions been decreasing in previous years, but you know it had been decreasing by almost 3% in 2015, almost 2% in 2016, almost 1% in 2017. So you can actually get the, the picture of the trend line here, which is that though emissions had been going down, they had been going down at a decreasing rate. And then this year, or this past year rather, they jumped um, almost 3.5% increase. Now, underlying that um, is obviously a sectoral picture. And you know, strikingly, um, emissions increased in every major sector. So the four sort of big areas of emissions, and they, they don't cover agriculture, so we'll set that aside, um, are power, transportation, industry, meaning direct industrial emissions, um, not through electricity usage, and buildings, same thing, direct emissions. And in every single one of those four sectors, emissions increased in 2018. They had been decreasing particularly in the power sector for the past few years. But the trend reversed in 2018 and uh, emissions increased by about 34 million metric tons in the power sector. The, the, and you know even more in industry and buildings, both of which were 54 and 55 million metric tons respectively. So that's where you saw the biggest sort of overall gross increase. And I think the 
um, the thing that's particularly striking about this is that it, there wasn't some major reversal in the trends that we've seen over the past few years. We continued to see a lot of coal retirements, for example, in the power sector, um, and we continued to see increases in um, vehicle efficiency in the transportation sector, and yet emissions still increased for a number of reasons that we can get into. So it's a um, somewhat alarming indication of the fact that despite positive trends we talk about a lot, we're obviously not moving fast enough to reduce CO2 emissions if emissions are going up, let alone not going down fast enough to meet our targets from Paris or elsewhere. Yeah, not even close. So Brad, put this into a bit more historical context for us. As I understand it, this is the second largest rise since about 1996. Um and the other major rise we saw was in like 2010 after the the recession. Um, so why have emissions been going down? What are the major contributing factors here? And um, like, is, does this make you nervous as you look at this sort of steady creep upward of emissions when we saw this uh, flattening or reduction? So I do think, uh, you know, in any uh, emissions have been falling pretty uh, significantly since 2005 or so, which was, you know, around when we really saw the start of the shale gas boom. And uh, and then subsequently to that, the rise, you know, really rapid rise of renewable electricity. I think, you know, emissions are generally trending downward over time. You are going to see ups and downs in any given year. Uh, it seems like a lot of the increase, although not all of it this year, was weather-related. The, um, uh, you know, I think Richard Meyer on Twitter of the American Gas Association pointed out that last February 1st set all-time records for natural gas use because it was really cold compared to the previous year. You had uh, people in the Northeast uh, heating their homes with natural gas because of the winter. You had uh, factories and in, in industrial sectors using a lot of natural gas to heat up um, their their factories and processes. So you do see bombogenesis. Exactly. <laughs> so you do see these blips from time to time. I think what's really interesting is looking at the underlying trends and trying to figure out what it tells us about where different parts of the economy are, are headed. And um, you know, here I think we did see some really interesting and uh, potentially disconcerting things if you're worried about climate change, where, um, you know, one we saw in the electricity sector, uh, solar and wind are still uh, growing pretty fast. They grew about as fast last year as they did the year before uh, in terms of the rise of uh, generation. But what we saw is that electricity demand is really starting to pick up as the economy grows. And... Uh, Solar and wind just couldn't fill that gap, and natural gas did instead. So that kind of tells you, okay, we might be reaching a point where we can't count on gas replacing coal every year to decarbonize the electricity sector uh, and emissions to keep coming down because, uh, you know, if electricity demand really grows, it may be that natural gas uh, becomes more and more dominant, and that's still a fossil fuel. So I want to draw out 
two of the things that you just mentioned there, because I think that if you look across all the sectors, there's something unique in each sector, right? In the power sector, you have this dynamic of retiring coal being replaced by natural gas and renewables, and then which grows faster. In the transportation sector, you've got different kinds of transportation, et cetera. Every sector has its own thing, and we should talk about them one by one. But I think there there were two factors to me that seemed like they were underlying what happened in 2018 overall that are worth drawing out in a little bit more detail. The first one is the the weather in 2018. As you mentioned, it was a cold winter, right? The bombogenesis hit. And, and so- um, just to interject, it was, you know, given that the uh, both the plant and the country are warming, historically, it wasn't that cold a winter, right. but it was significantly colder than 2017, which was unusually warm. Yeah, that's exactly the point that I was going to make is that, and Rhodium makes this point as well in their report, which was that Um, the more anomalous year was actually the prior year. 2017 was an anomalous warm year, more so than 2018 was an anomalous cold year. The, The first three months of 2018 were still warmer than the average for that same quarter during the previous 20 years. So I don't know that we can sort of, you know, we could say like year over year, yes, that that made a big difference, but you can't kind of bank on things returning back to 2017 levels and not needing as much heating in the winter. Um, and the second thing, which I think is the the more important underlying factor, was we had a strong economy last year. And that meant that we had increasing demand for electricity. It meant that we had increasing shipping. So trucks, um, airplanes, you know, all that stuff that contributed more than anything else and industrial emissions, right? Um, industrial production went up. So all those things were driven by a growing economy. And I, I guess I'm curious to get both of your take on, I saw some debate in the wake of this report about what this means in terms of um, whether we have successfully even started to decouple emissions growth from economic growth. Because at the end of the day, what we need to be able to do to hit our targets Um, for greenhouse gas emissions reduction is we need to be able to reduce greenhouse gas emissions despite what we anticipate and hope to be a growing economy. And if the reason that in 2018 emissions went up so much was that the economy was strong, um, are we failing on that count? Yeah, I always find the decoupling concept kind of weird just because as long as we use fossil fuels for a significant portion of our economy, uh, the amount that we use will always be a little dependent on the rate of economic growth. But I take your point that basically we need to be decarbonizing much, much faster. The rate of decline needs to be much, much faster if we really want to push emissions down and enjoy strong economic growth, uh, particularly if we're concerned about climate change and getting to zero emissions sometimes this century. Yeah, I was particularly struck by the emissions increases and the projected emissions increases in Texas and California, according to the Rhodium Group, um, because a lot of people point to this graph, this decoupling graph showing the moderation in energy use in California and the you know skyrocketing GDP since the seventies, and you see that you know around the mid seventies or so. California decoupled uh, its its energy use from economic growth. And I think that trend is still going to hold true. But now all of a sudden, you see, as the fifth largest economy, emissions starting to increase substantially in the industrial sector in California. And that looks like it will continue over the next couple of years. Uh, so I think the the decoupling question is a very complicated one. 
Um, and I also think it's it's another reason why California lawmakers recognize that they're not just going to win this fight with the renewable electricity. Uh, Governor Brown clearly understood that they have to focus on all sectors of the economy. So anyway, back to the decoupling question. I think it's very, very complicated. Yeah. And I mean, Rhodium pointed out that that what the part of the economy that we're perhaps doing the worst job of decarbonizing at the moment is the industrial sector, such that they anticipate that in the industrial sector is going to overtake um, emissions from the power sector in both California and Texas over the next five years. So when we talk about all the progress that we're making, it's largely in the power sector at this point. Um, if we don't pay attention to the industrial sector in particular, but also you know transportation and and buildings, then at the end of the day, we're still going to have a, a huge growing uh, emissions picture just from other sectors. Yeah, and I do think it's really interesting that if you look at the policy discussion. Um, both here and around the world. Up till now, we've spent a lot of time focusing on electricity, right? How do we clean up power plants? How do we retire coal and replace it with cleaner electricity? Um, And maybe a little bit on transportation with electric cars uh, are a big focus. Um, And, you know, those are both big sectors in the U.S. They're each about one third of emissions. Uh, but that still leaves a lot else. And the industrial sector, so that's everything from refineries, you know, how we make iron and steel, how we make ammonia, petrochemicals, uh, cement. Um, not only do those use a lot of electricity, but they also have their own separate emissions when they burn fossil fuels for heat or CO2 that comes out of chemical processes. And that's something that, uh, you know, by and large, policymakers haven't put a lot of focus on. And uh, part of the reason for that is that for a lot of these, they're really hard to clean up. Um, You know, maybe you can do some efficiency, but figuring out how to get cement to zero carbon is uh, a really difficult challenge. And, you know, right now the U.S. is doing very little on them. I think, you know, my sense is from talking to people in the campaign and sort of what they talked about is that if the 2016 election had gone differently, um, I think the Clinton folks were prepared to look into using EPA authority to maybe regulate some of those industrial sectors. But um, obviously that didn't happen. So that's not happening now. And even then, that would have been a slow, difficult process. So I want to talk a little bit more about those sectors in the second half of the show. But let's just focus on electricity for another moment. Uh, you know, one of the most alarming things about these numbers, and I know that there's seasonal variability here, we're going to have to look out over multiple years. But still, one of the most alarming things about the numbers is that natural gas is primarily filling in for coal closures, not wind and solar, even though wind and solar are still putting up record capacity additions. So, Shale, we we talked a lot about this in our decarbonization draft in the middle of last year. I thought, you know, wind, solar, and batteries were supposed to be solving this problem. It doesn't seem like they're, you know, they're making up for these coal closures yet. Yeah, I have sort of mixed feelings about how much I think we should take from this one year's worth of data. Because as Brad pointed out, I mean, it is still true that we are adding a lot of wind and solar to the grid. In most years, though this wasn't necessarily true in 2018, in most years, um, if you add up the variable renewables as far as new generating capacity additions, they are most of what we add to the grid. Now, you know, that doesn't mean that they're going to create the most new generation, right? And this is the point that um, 
natural gas advocates and others will make is that you can add 10 gigawatts of wind and wind and solar and 10 gigawatts of natural gas and you're going to get more production out of that natural gas because the capacity factor is higher and the wind isn't blowing all the time and the solar isn't sun isn't shining all the time um so you actually have to do more than that you know regardless the the trend line is is basically down for coal up for both gas and variable renewables um and on net i don't know i think that's a good thing uh certainly you could try to weigh that balance further towards variable renewables and i think that's what's happening now but it's going to take some time to show so for example in all these new utility procurements that'll be open source rfps um issued for you know any technology regardless of the source you know wind and solar are winning now most of the time but the problem is you know those projects aren't going to come online for a few years or if you look at utility integrated resource plans same thing you know increasingly what they're forecasting they're going to be building is is a lot of variable renewables and then adding storage and things like that so i think it's going to happen you know the debate i guess is how quickly it needs to happen and whether it should be accelerated relative to to what's ha- happening today, but this is the one place where, of all these numbers, I sort of feel like just looking at one year's worth of data is a little bit misleading. But I'm I'm curious to get both of your takes on that. I agree that you cannot just isolate one year's worth of data and then make some sweeping conclusion. But we've seen this play out in Germany. We've seen it in other countries that primarily rely on variable renewables. It's really hard to decarbonize just using those technologies. They're they're going to grow extremely quickly. You know, even the biggest oil majors believe that we're going to be a solar dominant world by the middle of the century. They will no doubt play a huge role, but clearly they're not enough to decarbonize fast enough. And I feel very repetitive saying that because I feel like we make that point over and over again, but there's this now this sweeping belief that these technologies are going to magically through alchemy do everything for us in decarbonization and the the storyline is very clear even though you know we're we're looking at a snapshot of data that wind and solar and batteries are going to be just one slice of the solution set um we can clearly conclude that already uh, I'd actually put it a different way over the last decade we've seen market forces have worked really powerfully to decarbonize the power sector. And sometimes I do worry that that has lulled people into thinking that those market forces are so powerful that they're going to do the job. But, you know, I think one of the things that we did see last year is uh, even though market forces are powerful, uh, the market doesn't necessarily care about getting emissions down as low as possible. Uh, For that, you kind of need more directed policy to really focus on that. And, uh, you know, I think what last year shows is that even though coal is retiring largely due to market forces, even though wind and solar, because they've become so cheap, are growing really fast, that's not necessarily going to ensure that we get the emissions reductions we want, particularly if you're talking about stopping climate change anytime soon. Yeah. I simultaneously believe that these technologies are somewhat limited in nature and we're not deploying them fast enough. But I also believe that they can start to fill in technologically 
for uh, thermal generators like natural gas. We just had had a show on uh, you know firm or dispatchable solar, and the technical capabilities are largely there. It's just a matter of structuring markets to figure out how to integrate more flexible PV. And once we get that right, you can probably have a much bigger impact with this narrow solution set. I want to talk about the transportation sector for a minute, if you're up for it. Yes, definitely. Let's unpack transportation and heating and cooling a bit more. And also, let's talk about what would happen if we quit our jobs and became emissions dictators for a day. First, though, I know what our sponsor, Wonder Capital, would focus on if they had that role. Commercial solar, of course, and they are actually making an impact. Wonder is now helping community solar developers. The company just launched a progressive new community solar offering dedicated to financing projects in ways that other lenders can't. For example, with Wonder, community solar projects can have up to 100% residential offtake. In addition, hefty termination penalties, long-term contracts, and subscriber FICO scores, they aren't required. That's a big deal. That makes this a much simpler offering. Head over to wondercapital.com GTM to submit your community solar projects today. Wonder Capital powering the commercial solar industry. Well, so as we mentioned at the top, transportation emissions in the U.S., we think, increased in 2018, as they did in other sectors. But underlying that, I think, is sort of an important point about what's happening in the transportation sector in general, which is that gasoline demand actually shrank marginally, like 0.1%, but down ever so slightly. So that was not the cause of the emissions growth. Instead, the two primary causes of emissions growth in the transportation sector are areas that we talk less about, which were, first of all, diesel demand from trucks, and second of all, jet fuel demand from airplanes. Both of those, um, again, the underlying factor being strong economic activity. You had more truck tonnage, just more shipping of stuff, Basically, that led to increased diesel demand from trucks, and then you had more people flying. More air revenue passenger miles meant more jet fuel demand. But so, you know, to me, it was another reminder that in the transportation sector, for example, um, we talk a lot about electrification as the sort of climate change solution. Let's just electrify transportation. And even if we were doing that in light duty vehicles, um, we'd still have to deal with diesel from trucks, and we'd still have to deal with jet fuel from airplanes. Yeah, the most uh, striking stat that always really gets me is that if you look at global oil use, passenger vehicles are only about a quarter of that, Uh, which just means even if we electrified every single passenger vehicle in the world, it would be amazing, it would be huge progress for decarization, it would also only make a small dent in oil demand relatively. Right. And that's uh, because there is oil demand for these other areas of transportation, but then also petrochemicals is a big area of oil demand. That's I, I had that point made to me by an unnamed oil and gas major a couple of years ago when we were talking about vehicle electrification. I was asking them whether they thought it was sort of a fundamental threat. And they said, look, we've done a bunch of modeling. And even if passenger vehicles electrify, we think there's going to be long term increasing demand for oil because largely of petrochemicals more than anything else. Yeah. And those areas too, uh, much like uh, industry in the industrial sector are areas that not a lot of policy focus and it's not entirely obvious how we're going to decarbonize 
uh, air travel and trucking. There are some thoughts. Maybe we can electrify trucks. You know, maybe uh, there are things we can do with rail. But it's it the path isn't as clear as it is for passenger vehicles. I think the path might be a little bit clearer uh, in my eyes for trucking. I mean, I, I think that electrified autonomous trucks could probably have a huge impact within the next decade. Uh, of course, it depends on regulation. But, you know, a lot of companies are working on different electrified models. And it seems to me the one technology that could have a substantial impact within a decade. Aviation, of course, is just extremely difficult. And the, the biofuel experimentation that we've seen in the aviation sector hasn't worked out well. Biofuels are really expensive. You know, they're they're working on a small biofuel blend at this point with, with uh, aviation test flights and you know, electrified air travel is only going to work for uh, like small regional flights. It's not going to be cross-country flights or international flights for a very, very long time. So I don't know. It seems like trucking is probably the the easiest of, of those two sectors. I think I agree with you, or I don't know if I would say easiest, but at least yeah, near- easy is uh, relative. <laughs> nearest. I mean, I think you're, you're definitely right that we're going to see a wave of electric trucks becoming available on the market in the next five years. And as you said, the, you know, a lot of the focus around autonomous, which comes along with electric a lot of the time, sort of brings electric along with it because almost every autonomous vehicle is an electric vehicle. Um, a lot of the focus in the autonomous vehicle world is on trucking as well, because it, in some ways it's actually a lot easier to have an autonomous truck that's driving on highways than an autonomous vehicle that's driving in an urban landscape. Um, so that that's definitely coming, you know, is it coming fast enough while in the meantime, every increase in economic activity drives an increase in diesel demand? I'm not sure. So, so what do you guys think about the, the, the aviation picture? Does that, anything stand out to you that can help us solve this challenge aside from like less air travel? I mean, electrification is really not going to put a dent into the numbers that we see and biofuels production is so minimal. Does does anyone see us solving that challenge anytime soon? Uh, the most out of left field, uh, maybe semi-promising thing I've heard is uh, using ammonia fuels. Uh, that is very difficult because right now, you know, we use ammonia for fertilizer and uh, a bunch of other things. And right now we make a lot of it by uh, uh, using high temperature steam on natural gas, which creates a lot of CO2. But in theory, and I know Australia is looking at this, uh, people, smarter people than me certainly are trying to figure out potentially green ways of making uh, the hydrogen that you need for ammonia. Um, So who knows if that all pans out, maybe we could see either hydrogen powered planes, uh, which I know have attracted some interest or even using ammonia as a drop in fuel. But uh, you know, I think this is all still quite a ways out. And without a big concerted R&D and policy focus, it's hard to see how this will come quick enough uh, on the climate policy scales, you know, people generally care about. So I do want to talk briefly about the Trump bump. What what happens in the medium term due to the Trump deregulation agenda? You know, this the New York Times has done a fantastic job of cataloging the the impact on people's lives today, right now, um, and also the economy-wide impact. So, Brad, as we think through the changes to 
the clean power plan, you know, the power plan emissions rule, the the, the auto emission standards, uh, methane standards. What's the cumulative impact that people are projecting or thinking through over the you know the next decade? Yeah. So the first thing to say is I don't think we can really see signs of the Trump rollback last year. Uh, I don't think that's a big reason why emissions went up. Uh, so sharply, just because some of these things take a long time to have an effect, right? They're proposing to freeze cafe standards after 2021. Um, the power plant rules, uh, you know, that might translate in a slower decline of coal power, but that's still a ways out. Um, you know, I think smart people like the Rhodium Group have tallied up what they think the impacts could be, and it's pretty significant. I think the total extra emissions from freezing the cafe standards, the um, passenger vehicle fuel economy rules, uh, is something like, you know, comparable to the annual emissions of a mid-sized country like Austria. So it's pretty significant. But to me, I kind of think the biggest impact of the Trump administration um, is not that they will send emissions soaring, because I think you still have these powerful market forces that will clean up the electricity sector, you know, you still have the rise of electric vehicles and and fuel efficient vehicles. But I think uh, the bigger point here is that if we want to tackle climate change, emissions have to really drastically decrease and they have to decrease much faster than they have over the past decade. And they have to do that in the US and then they have to do that around the world. And I think the lack of policy from the Trump administration and the lack of focus on this issue makes that extremely difficult, uh, if not impossible, to see for the next five years, maybe longer. Um, and that's going to be a big deal because that means, uh, you know, we're much slower to get to the point where we ultimately get um, a comprehensive climate plan and, and get down to zero emissions. And I think that's going to be the biggest lasting impact is the lack of stronger policy right at a time when if we want to tackle climate change, we really need stronger policy. How much do you think that activity at the state level is able to make up for that? You have at least some states that are, you know, taking up the mantle, California being an obvious example, um, and becoming perhaps more aggressive in light of how the federal administration is treating the issue. Do you think that that outweighs the impact at the federal level? Does it ameliorate it somewhat? Or is it sort of uh, doesn't the states just don't have that much power here? I think what we've seen so far is it ameliorates it a little bit, but not much. And part of that is that if you look at the states that are uh, acting and trying to push on climate policy despite the Trump administration, it's uh, only a sliver of the total country. Um, Part of it is also they have limited tools. So if the Trump administration rolls back fuel economy standards, you know, states have really been struggling to do anything else on transportation. Now we'll see, there are a bunch of states in the Northeast plus Virginia, plus a few others that are looking at maybe a cap and trade system for transportation fuels, but uh, they're still talking about that and that's going to take a while to figure out. But I think even the states that are most aggressive about climate policy, uh, they've crunched the numbers themselves and they've shown that you know the US is not going to hit its uh, Paris targets that were proposed under the last administration through state action alone, unless you see really dramatic uh, scale-ups in action. What's crazy to me is that we've seen pretty substantial action on 
efficiency for commercial buildings. And I know that the Rhodium Group kind of lumps together the built environment and industry. So it can be hard to understand the commercial built environment. But the fact that emissions are rising, even though we have all these policies on the state level put into place um, for, to, to improve the efficiency of buildings and to benchmark energy use, that's a bit alarming as well. Yeah. And I think part of that might be, even if you have really aggressive building efficiency standards, buildings just last for so long that the stock turnover is really slow. So you could have, I think a state like New York or New York City is now proposing some really aggressive standards. I would be willing to bet if you modeled out the emissions impact, it's going to take a while to really see that just because you know it takes a long time for buildings to turn over and for new ones to get built. I think that's right, though um, one of our portfolio companies at Energy Impact Partners is Spark Fund that offers sort of, you know, as a service, they, they help um, do things like energy efficiency as a service, as a subscription. And they've been crunching a bunch of data that I hope we'll be able to share later on once it's finalized at looking at when um, HVAC is going to have to be replaced in, in commercial buildings. And the sort of preliminary finding there is that there's actually a big wave of HVAC replacements that are going to have to happen over the next few years, just given when all these systems were first installed in their lifetimes. So there may be an opportunity to turn over a bunch of um, equipment within buildings in a relatively short period of time. And if you replace it with something that is more efficient or electrified or whatever it's going to be, you can make a bigger dent because what you're describing, Brad, is exactly the problem, which is that you, it's hard to, it's hard to replace equipment or replace building stock faster than its natural lifetime, just from an economic perspective. So you have to find the times and the places where there's turnover and then attack as quickly as you can. Okay, gents. Uh, let's wrap up and, and make you king or dictator for a day. What sectors or sector are you going to focus on given where these numbers lie in 2018? Um, you know, what do you think would make the most impact? Uh, Brad, you go first. Um, so I think the standard answer is you should clean up the power sector and then try to electrify things as much as possible, which is probably the boringly correct answer. But I would probably, if I was dictator for a day, although I might need more than a day for this, um, really put a really put a big push on the industrial sector, partly because I think it's hard and we're way behind. But also, I think a lot of the technologies that could come out of a really concerted push in the industrial sector could really help elsewhere. So we might, you know, if we were really focused on decarbonizing, for instance, iron and steel, that might lead us down a path of developing uh, zero carbon uh, hydrogen systems, for instance. Um, I think for a lot of these sectors, you'd probably really have to perfect um, carbon capture, which could come in handy elsewhere. Um, you know, I think it just gets you into a lot of technological areas that have been pretty neglected to date in the broader decarbonization conversation. And it seems to me like the one that we're really the furthest behind on. I think I, well, I mean, <laughs> the I'm not a king, but the actual reality is that I've dedicated most of my career to the power sector. So I guess I'm, I'm speaking with my experience um, on that one. But I, but I think if I'm king for a day and I can 
you know, focus all my attention on one sector, it's going to be the transportation sector right now, because just sort of cold, hard facts, the transportation sector in the United States now is the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions. It surpassed the power sector a few years ago. And where the power sector is, is um, absent 2018 has been on a you know, somewhat, I guess, a medium term decline in emissions, the transportation sector has not, it has still been seeing increases in in emissions. So perhaps a big portion of the solution there is to electrify, but whatever the solution is, transportation sector is the one that I think deserves the most attention right now. For sure. I, I would probably still stick to my plan as part of our deep decarbonization draft, and that is put a lot of stock into carbon capture and utilization so that you can level out the emissions in things like cement and concrete production and uh, industrial chemicals production. I think that there's a real need to figure out how to use technology to capture emissions and then reuse those pollution sources for uh, products that we can use throughout the economy. So I still stick with that. I I would put a lot of money into carbon capture and utilization. I also might um, try to figure out how to get people to buy less stuff too. Maybe the Jimmy Carter equivalent of putting on the sweater and lowering the thermostat, get like the the minimalist guys or something on a primetime television uh, address to the nation and talk about, you know, not needing as much stuff so that we can cut emissions that way. <laughs> somebody joke, should measure, <laughs> somebody should measure the, uh, em- the estimated emissions impact of Marie Kondo with her magical art of tidying <laughs> up and her new TV show <laughs> based on that. I bet actually you could make a case that she personally is going to have a, a meaningful impact on uh, consumption and perhaps then emissions. Oh my God, some smart Stanford uh, graduate student, please get on that. That sounds amazing. By the way, I love Marie Kondo. Okay, I think that's a good place to end it. Brad Plumer, a reporter with the New York Times. Uh, thank you so much. It's it's great to catch up with you. I love your reporting and uh, we'll, we'll keep following what you're writing. Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. Chael, same to you. Uh, I think I can smell another decarbonization draft coming in the next few months. Yeah, I have an idea for a, uh, a tweak on the draft, but I'm not going to tell you about it until I figure out how to game it. So, uh, play <laughs> okay. Well, we'll do our best to gamify some of these subjects to make them continually compelling and to challenge you to participate in our conversations as well. And with that, hit us up on Twitter at Interchange Show. You can follow Brad Plumer there. You can follow Shale there and follow me. And uh, if you want to comment on what we discussed on this show, Hit us up and and we'll, you know, uh, factor some of your thoughts into upcoming shows. Also, don't forget, you can get a free subscription to GTM Squared. That's $249 in yearly value. You can get that for free if you go to Apple Podcasts and write us a creative review. And over the next two weeks, Shale and I are going to sort through those reviews. We're going to pick the best one. And then that person's going to get a yearly subscription to GTM Squared. So please go ahead and uh, start doing that. Be creative. And we'll touch base in two weeks with the winner. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Lacey with Shale Khan. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media.